yes, we want to sell books. Yes, we want our books to be popular, but there has to be something above that, which is that you want the book to be really reflective of you and most importantly, reflective of the subject and to do it justice. Welcome to School for Writers, where we help you ditch that starving, tortured artist cliche and thrive. No more struggling over whether your story is good enough or wondering if your voice deserves to be heard. It's time to step into the power of telling your story to the world. I'm your host, Lauren Marie Fleming, and I am a book-obsessed, queer, fat, witchy, divinely loud woman. And I know what it's like to have society tell you to sit down and shut up. But I'm here to tell you that you've been silenced for far too long. School for Writers was created to help you push through doubt and fear so you can stop procrastinating and start writing. Because the world needs your story now more than ever. Welcome to School for Writers. Let's get to it. Do you long for a group of like-minded writers like you who want to try to thrive both personally and professionally as writers? Are you tired of going at it alone? Are you ready to find a community of your own that can help you both with your career and your craft of writing? Well, I have an amazing, exciting upcoming program called the School for Writers Academy. Opening in June 2021, the School for Writers Academy is going to be a place where we focus on three separate things. First, we're going to help you create the time and space that you need in your life for creativity and for writing. Second, we're going to help you figure out the money aspects of writing. We're going to help you monetize this thing so you can actually have a career and keep going. And third, when you sit your butt in that chair, we're going to help you with the craft of it. What do you write? How do you make your writing even better? Those are the three foundations of building a thriving writing career. As Virginia Woolf once said, a woman needs money and a room of her own to write. We're creating a community full of camaraderie and accountability, centering people whose voices have been silenced for far too long. We're here to help you with the foundations of writing, making both the money so you can keep doing it, and when you sit your butt in that chair in the room alone, helping you figure out what to write and how to make it better. This is exactly the kind of community that I needed and wanted for the decades that I have been a writer, and I didn't find it anywhere else. So that was a bummer for me, but it's a great, amazing benefit for you. I created School for Writers because I got tired of seeing people have that starving, tortured artist cliche. I want to help you thrive as a writer. And that's why I created the School for Writers Academy, a place for us to come together and educate each other and work within community. The Academy starts June 1st, and I would love to have you in it. For more information, check out schoolforwriters.com academy, because the world needs your story now more than ever. Welcome back to the School for Writers podcast. Today I have Kavita Das, and I am beyond excited to be having this conversation about a really important topic, and that is how do you enact cultural and social change through writing? How do you write about social issues without appropriating other people's culture? How do you allow for own voices while also encouraging diversity in your own writing as well? How do you transition from the world of social justice to the world of writing? Kavita has done all of that, and she's here to help support you in doing the same, to let you in on her own personal journey and story, and to help shed some insight onto how you might start your personal journey as well. In this episode, Kavita and I talk about systematic rejection and the way in which systematic racism plays into the publishing world. It is a really profound, poignant, and entertaining conversation, and I am so excited to share it with you. So here is my interview with Kavita Das. Welcome, Kavita. I am so excited to get to chat with you. We just, for those who are um, just tuning in on the our YouTube or podcast, we just talked for 20 minutes. We were so excited <laughs> to catch up with each other. We haven't seen each other since... We went to this like string of conferences together, but COVID has kept us apart. So it was really, really great to get to catch up with you. But now we're officially chatting and I am so excited to share some of the wonderfulness that is you. So I just did your official bio. Why don't you tell us 
who you are and what you put out into this world. Sure, uh, Lauren, it's so wonderful to be here and I'm excited about what you're doing with the School for Writers. Um, so I, I'll give it to you in a nutshell. So essentially I was living my life working in social change. I started out in government and then I, it morphed into, you know, start, started out in community development then went into pediatric, you know, health and public health. And, uh, and then most recently I worked in racial justice, which has obviously become a particularly relevant, you know, topic. You know, I started to kind of burn with the desire to write stories and to write about some of the very issues that I was working on. Most notably, I wanted to write the life story of a musician, Lakshmi Shankar, who's a Grammy-nominated singer from, you know, India, who was part of the movement that brought Indian music to the West. And I had no idea how to go about this. You know, I knew that I would need to interview her, but in terms of publishing, you know, I had no contacts. I had no, no sense of that. I had taken some creative writing courses, but you know, there's a strong, long distance between that and, you know, writing a biography. Fast forward, you know, you and I met in a course that was kind of about, you know, memoir writing. I took the bones of that and just kind of pushed forward. And it took six, seven years, but I published my book in 2019. It's called Poignant Song, The Life and Music of Lakshmi Shankar. And I'm now working on book number two. And in this time, I've actually I always, I don't run at all, so I don't know why I use this metaphor, but I'm, uh, if anything, I would be a sprinter if I did run. I'm not a marathoner. So in some ways, it's good that I didn't know that it would take me six years to write the book and all the other things that it would take to write it. But along the way, when I came to writing, I was kind of amazed coming straight from racial justice, how undiverse it was, how uh, inequitable it was. And I felt like I needed to write about that, you know? And so while I was working on the biography and figuring that out, I wrote a whole bunch of articles, essays uh, about topics like race, gender, um, you know, social change issues and culture, culture issues and inequities. And so that was a great experience to kind of be working on those articles while also working on, on the book. So fast forward till now, I created a course called Writing About Social Issues because I was often getting asked by fellow writers and emerging writers how to write about social issues uh, with integrity, essentially. And so the course, which is like six weeks long and covers a lot of topics, essentially focuses on how do you write truthfully and yet compellingly about social issues, um, given that they can be fraught and complicated in these times. And my next book is actually inspired by the course that I've been teaching for the last couple of years. So I think right now it's titled Sparking Change on the Page. And it's about writing about social issues. And it's coming out from Beacon Press next year. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, y'all, can you hear why I love Kavita? Why I'm so excited <laughs> to chat with her? Because there's such juicy, juicy, juiciness in that. And we will get to all of it. But first, I'm going to ask you the very first question I ask everybody who comes on here. And that is, why writing? Why? That's a great question. I think there's there are people in this world who are born storytellers. And some of them are amazing oral storytellers. Some of them, you know, and you find them on park benches, just talking and you could listen to them for hours because they are so compelling you know whether they're telling their life story or they're telling folk tales you know whatever it is and i think that so many of us burn with stories inside of us but can't always figure out how to get those out in what medium you know works for us the truth is i didn't grow up a reader so it's kind of hilarious that i've become a, a writer you know my sister my older sister was uh, much more a reader than I was. And I was that mischievous younger sister who would hide her books so that she would have to play with me. So that's How what we- How could you do that? And that they didn't was... call the police on you? <laughs> the librarian. The librarian? <laughs> I was like, no, we don't call the police. The librarian on you? So I, that's the raw material that I was working with. It was, you know, a childhood where I wasn't, you know, and I think some of that, quite honestly, was because I didn't find books that reflected me. 
you know, so I was like, why should I be interested in this thing? Because you tell me that I should be. So, you know, I wasn't so much of a reader. Ironically, it was in college that when I had all these books that I was supposed to read and be writing a senior thesis that I suddenly found, you know, the pleasure of reading, <laughs> which it's is very procrastination <laughs> will get you to do. <laughs> You're like, I have to was... read this book now, read this one. <laughs> but once I was bitten and i think it's again because by that point we're talking about the you know um mid 90s we were seeing arindati roy we were seeing jim Lahiri, we were seeing you know so many more authors of color coming in you know at least a few right that you know that were really making it on the global scene and so that started this appetite for me but i i still saw it as something that i wanted to do as a hobby because i was well entrenched in my social change work. I was very um, emotionally invested in it, um, in social justice issues of, you know, different, you know, as I said, I, it evolved what I, what I focused on. But interestingly enough, I think in some ways, when I came to work in racial justice, the macro of racial justice is, you know, changing laws and policies and behaviors. But on a micro level, the thing that pushed me into right, like to make the leap you know, without knowing how I was going to do it or have all the answers was that to me, a micro injustice happens when stories of people, particularly marginalized people go by the wayside and they get lost to history. They get lost to history books. And that is what I felt was in danger of happening to Lakshmi Shankar's story. And I think that I was very much in that space working on these issues in a larger sphere. But then I was thinking about how this happens kind of quietly, more insidiously. And so that's what my motivation was to kind of make the leap. What got you interested in Lakshmi Shankar? And also, I love that getting to talk with you and hearing you talk about her has made me listen to her music and like appreciate her as well. And you can find her on Spotify. Really enjoyed like all day today was just listening to her music in preparation for our chat. And I mean, I feel listening to her, I can understand the draw, but why was there a particular moment or a thing, or was it a buildup? Like, why did you decide to write, to spend all this time writing about someone's life? So that's a really good question. I (laughs) fundamentally, um, so I was blessed to have known Lakshmi Shankar my whole life. Mm. And she was almost like a grandmother to me. And so she would literally stay at our house when she would come to perform in New York. But truthfully, my my parents, who are very stereotypically both physicians from, from India, we actually hosted a lot of artists. That, that was a role they played was, and I'm very thankful that they introduced me to Indian music uh, and to Indian culture in that way. But I didn't, I of course was a kid and I didn't realize how lucky you know, I was. But the truth was I always loved her music. I just, I I loved it as a child. And as you know, as we evolve from children to adults, our tastes change. You know, we we change every few years, we get into new types of genres of music. And that happened to me, but I never lost my taste for her music. It went with me to college, it went with me to my first apartment, and it's, you know, still obviously with me today. And then, as I said, as I was uh, working in racial justice, it occurred to me now I was like, you know, in my uh, late 30s, I think I was almost turning 40. And I had an appreciation as a woman of what she had done, you know, and that she had in decades ago, managed to be part of this movement as the only prominent female, you know, in this movement that included both Western rock stars like George Harrison and jazz musicians like Coltrane and so many others who were part of this movement that helped bring Indian music to the West. And she even got a Grammy nomination. Interestingly, in India, her home country, she was not recognized the way she should have been. And that was something that also stuck in my head. So the two motivating questions I had were, how did she do what she did? And how come after having accomplished so much, why is she not as recognized as she should be? So those were my two like burning questions that you know, literally burned through my whole writing of the book, constantly acting as fuel uh, for me. But I think that, like I said, I mean, to me, I was working, I was head of communications, director of marketing communications for Race Race Forward, a racial justice organization. And this was under Obama's second administration. 
it was an amazing position. And I, I rebranded the organization. Its name was actually Applied Research Center. And I rebranded it with help from others to race forward. So that race was in the name. So I was very fulfilled and very busy and very much believed in the work I was doing. And yet, back to your original question, why writing? And yet, I kind of felt like here was a story that I felt so compelled to tell because I was so worried about it being lost to the world. And there, you know, I would talk to people that were close to me and, you know, people close to me, including my, my husband were like, I think it's going to have to be you. <laughs> I think you're going to have to <laughs> do this. And uh, so that's what I did. Oh, there's so much beauty in that. One, I know so much about the story of Ravi Shankar and George Harrison, but I never heard anything ever about Lakshmi Shankar. Exactly. And once I heard from you, I did some Googling. I was like, why don't we hear about her? She mm -hmm. did huge things in the industry. And you hear about George Harrison, the like white man from the West who came exactly. and like, you know, talk, talk, learned from her, but like, you don't, you hear about Ravi Shankar, but you never hear about Lakshmi Shankar. And mm -hmm. I love that this, this desire to not let a woman of color's story mm -hmm. that you personally had a connection with too die and be not die, but like not get the fuel it deserves mm -hmm. and the time it deserved. I love that. Yeah. I love yeah. that you had that passion. Like you said, there was a burning question in you that pushed you through writing mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And that is just why what you just encapsulated is why storytelling has so much power mm -hmm. because it can document our stories we can document our existence and that is exactly. the base of social change and yeah. and you know they there's always this statistic I go back to that you're 75 percent more likely to vote for gay rights if you've had a conversation and heard the stories of a gay person and exactly. I think about how that works with all other marginalized communities and how storytelling humanizes us and humanizes the experience and mm -hmm. And I just, I love everything you said about that. And I, I want to know though, what was that transition like for you? Was it like, okay, cool. I'm going to go right. That's easy. You go from social justice and this passion. Was that an easy thing to transfer to the page or was that a process? It was definitely a process. You know, when you talk about things, you talk about them in this way that makes it seem like, oh, and I just, you know, moved from this to, you know, this working in social justice to working, you know, to, to being all alone as a writer. I mean, that in itself was uh, a, a big transition, like going to the office every day, being in charge of a team, this dynamic, you know, work that I was doing, and then suddenly sitting all by myself, not sure how to do this thing that I had set out to do, leaving that world behind. And I remember my, my husband said, listen, I think I believe in you. I believe you can figure this out, but I'm going to tell you that I think you need people. <laughs> You're a person that needs people. <laughs> and I really, I'm thankful that he said that because, you know, I, because of that, I joined a writing space, you know, and, um, and this is something that I think is really important is finding community, finding community through fellow writers, mentors, peers, classes, conferences, you know, readings, just putting yourself in the mix, because that mix is not only just will provide you information, inspiration, motivation, but it will be a constant reminder that this thing that you're doing alone by yourself is actually being done by other people who share that passion. But the transition was was difficult. It, it was in the sense that I loved what I did for 15 years and I had gotten better and better at it. And it was something that I knew. And I wasn't a 20 something year old where I was like, let's try something new. I was, you know, approaching 40. I was in senior level positions within an organization. I was making money, <laughs> you know, maybe not a whole lot because I was working in, you know, the social change space. But, you know, it was a regular salary that I could depend on and I didn't have any of that, you know, and so that was a big transition. And I, I'll be honest, I resisted this. I was like, maybe I can write a biography while working full time as the head of marketing communications. And I tried it for a little while and 
you know, it, it wasn't working. You know, something that I'll mention is that six months after I jumped to do this, about six months, maybe a little less, definitely less than a year, Lakshmi Shankar passed away. So I had done the interviews that I had done, you know, she lived on the other side of the country from me. So it, it, it involved travel. So I had the material. So now I was like, not only have I left, but she's actually not alive anymore. Do I even have all the material do I, that I need? So I hadn't gotten a contract yet. And so I had to, again, revisit my decision. And then I felt like I had kind of promised her. Besides the promise I had made to myself, I had kind of also promised her. So I felt like I needed to kind of push forward for better or for worse. Oh, ooh. I know. Also, I'm so glad you left when you did so you could get those interviews, right? Talk about following your gut. That's, that's a very good point. I often tend to focus on, oh my gosh, you know, why didn't I leave sooner? But what if I hadn't listened to that gut and I can tell you my life is full of times where I ignored my gut because it wasn't didn't seem rational or logical and things did not go well so I'm really glad that and I think honestly the the thing that pushed me over the top was that Ravi Shankar passed away um, a year before Lakshmi Shankar did and when he passed away it sent me a message that people aren't around forever Mm-hmm. And so that's what made me realize that I needed to push forward on this if I was going to do it. But it was very scary. Yeah. Oh, it's I love that you scary. took that, that, that leap of faith. And I love that you brought up that we don't trust our gut because our rational mind comes up. And I think that that's one of the things that's hard in the creative world is that what is rational is not always what is right when it comes to your creativity. Like I have sat down to write the book that I know I'm supposed to write. And then a whole other book comes out and I can't Mm -hmm. help but do that. Or you, or like it takes a different turn or, okay, I'm going to spend all these years on a book and it might not bring me money. And we live in a capitalist world that tells you it has to bring you money. And yes, you can. I'm like here to say, I mean, one of our goals is to ditch the starving artist cliche. You can make money as a writer, but you're often not making money off of your books and off of your writing. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so while you can build a business, sometimes you could spend years and your book doesn't even get published. So I love that you, instead of trying to be rational, you follow this gut, this passion, Mm -hmm. this burning question that you talked about in the beginning. I just, I think that that is probably why you're so inspiring. And now to myself and to others in your writing is because you can tell when you write that you have a passion for what you're talking about. And I mean, to be honest, I haven't read Poignant Song, although I bought it and it's on its way here. So I haven't read it yet, but I'm really excited to read it. And they didn't have it at my local bookstore, so they had to order it, but I'm waiting for the order to come in. But I have read some of your essays. So I would Mm -hmm. love to know about some of the other work that you do around social change, not just in long book form, but some of these other ways in which you write. Sure. I think that this, the thing that you brought up, I I like that you distinguish between, I think it's very important to distinguish between writing and publishing, uh, you know, and writing for the love of writing and writing to make money or the writing part of your career and other parts of your career that augment the, the writing. And I think that that can be a very healthy way of uh, approaching uh, writing, even writing and then working in a different career. If, if my career had allowed me the hours you know, and the flexibility, you know what we are dealing with in this country in terms of racial justice. It wouldn't have been fair to the book project or to my my belief in racial justice to try and split myself in half. And so I think so I've continued to do racial justice work through my writing and through, you know, other activities. So it still is very meaningful to me. But I think sometimes you just have to kind of follow this unknown path, which I'm a hyper rational person. And so that was very difficult for me and still sometimes is very difficult, you know, for me um, to, to kind of go to the thing that's not guaranteed, you know, but you were asking, I'm sorry, you asked another question. Yeah. I'd love for us to also talk about the other types of oh, the other types of right. amazing essayist. And I'd love to chat a little bit about that. And I thought sure. you brought up right now, a really great segue in that 
your social justice didn't end just because you left working with a social justice organization. I think that so many people I've talked to, they're like, well, I work for this nonprofit and I want to make a difference. I can't make a difference. I went to law school and I realized Mm -hmm. in law school that the best way for me to make a difference was not to study law, but was to write about the the subjects. So I think that there's a power in that Mm -hmm. writing. How did that transition work for you? And in what ways did you harness, have you harnessed, and are you continuing to harness writing to help enact social change? Sure. I mean, uh, there are a couple of ways, you know, so some of it, like I said, you know, I came to the field of writing and I was, you know, I had just worked in racial justice. So I was deeply sensitized, you know, to that. And I came into the, to the writing publishing realm and, you know, depending on which statistics you look at, it's uh, in the publishing sector, it's 80 plus percent white. And you see this reflected in uh, who are in positions of power, who uh, make the decisions on which books get published. Uh, And meanwhile, I had been forming my own communities, mostly populated with writers of color, you know, and and of course, so much of our conversations are were about how do we scale this wall, you know, and how, how many different ways are we told that our stories are not, you know, publishable, are not readable, are not sellable, you know, all of these, these words. And I had just come from racial justice work where we know that by 2042, there's going to be a minority majority. I also have a secret MBA, which I don't talk about. A secret MBA, you know, as one does. (laughs) Of course you have a secret MBA. In marketing. So it's just, to me, what I found so maddening about the publishing sector is that I understand business arguments and The business argument is there for publishing widely, for publishing diversely. It actually is totally against their own longevity and their own health as an industry to publish as narrowly as they have. So it's just, to me, fascinating. So I remember, I'll just give you, like, sometimes my pieces start with Facebook rants (laughs) about, you know, issues that were, you know, really you know, bothering me. And sometimes they were issues, you know, within the writing world. So uh, Marlon James, who is, you know, a Booker Prize winning, you know, author, uh, there was this meme going around amongst writers, you know, because of an article that had been published after his Booker Prize was awarded, saying that, you know, he had almost given up on writing. He had essentially burnt all his manuscripts or, you know, destroyed all his manuscripts. And then somehow this agent, you know, found one and found him and lo and behold, you know, so it was like, don't give up. And I was like, that's bullshit. (laughs) That's bullshit. Why, how many Marlon James are there out there? And what if most of them do give up? What if an agent doesn't find them? So how many Booker Prize worthy authors are out there, you know, particularly from marginalized backgrounds who are not getting the chance to publish because of the way the system is set up? And so I wrote a piece called about not romanticizing systemic rejection, the systemic racism behind rejection. And then a a friend, uh, a fellow writer of color, uh, an amazing writer named Jakira Diaz, uh, who is the author of Ordinary Girls, her memoir, messaged me and said, you should write an essay about this. And I was like, really? And so I wrote the essay. And then I was like, where should I send this? Should I, you know, and she was like, the Atlantic. I was like, what? And so I sent it to the Atlantic. And they made hardly any changes to it. And they published it. Mm -hmm. And then it got shared a whole bunch. And then people debated it. And then there was I don't know, the read it version of it that kind of like um, took issues with, you know, oh, this writer of color who's complaining. So then I wrote a McSweeney's piece making fun of m- m- making fun of that about how asking editors to please pick days in the calendar that would be appropriate for rejecting us, you know, that, you know, not around the holidays, not during the summer, preferably, you know, so, you know, because to your point, you know, like you, you have to have a passion, but I think a sense of humor also really helps because I actually have no, I don't want to say I don't have a problem with rejection. Nobody enjoys it, but I think rejection is so much a part of being a creative and being a writer that if you do not get comfortable with a certain amount of it, 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 it will just become like drudgery. 
you know? And so you have to really, and that's why I was saying that I think it's this really, this dance, I feel, being in writing, being in any creative space, I imagine, that where you have to be very certain of the core of your project, but then be open to potentially taking it in a different direction than you had planned. And so I think when you are getting criticism or feedback and it takes you away from that core, that's when you know that you're not with your peeps. These are not people who understand why you're doing what you're doing. So as I was talking to you, I think before we started the podcast, someone who's telling me to write a memoir, to make my biography into a memoir, those are not my peeps. <laughs> someone who's saying, I think that this thing that you talk about very little, I find that fascinating. Maybe you should talk about that more. I'm really curious about that. That's somebody who's opening a window to you in your project that you didn't consider. And that's actually very important uh, because sometimes we get so in the weeds of our projects that it's hard for us to, to know what will be compelling to a reader. Oh my goodness. <laughs> First off, this idea of not romanticizing systemic rejection. Oh my God, that's so real. I We met in a memoir class and I got a big name agent from the memoir and we sent it out to all the top five, all the big publishers. Mm -hmm. And the continued thing we got back and back was, this is beautifully written, but no one wants to read a lesbian sex memoir. Like, we love this. Send us something else from her. Nobody's going to buy a lesbian sex memoir. And that rejected me for a really long time. And I was like, okay, well, I got it. I can't write about myself then. Mm -hmm. I can't be myself in publishing. So it was an interesting thing. And I, I am one of like, I'm still white. I'm still relatively mainstream in my queer looks. Like I am still relatively able to like, she go up into a room. I cannot tell you how many friends I have that have been rejected for the same thing that a mainstream person comes in and it's not their story and they're telling that story and they get the book deal. And that idea of like systematic rejection, like it's in the system to yeah. praise people who are different for writing about your story, but you can't write about it exactly. because, you know, that's why the whole yes. voices movement is so powerful. Yeah. Like, let us tell our stories. Yes. Include diversity in your characters, but let us tell our own stories. Yes, exactly. I think that's the latest debacle, American Dirt. You know, there are the people who are shocked, you know, shocked by it. I wasn't shocked by it. I've been waiting on it. <laughs> Just like, you know, um, and, you know, I've written, I teach about cultural appropriation in my class. You know, I realized I was like, this is a constant binary conversation that's going on. It's a debate, you know, oh, this is censorship. Oh, this is, you know, cultural appropriation. And, and where do you find, you know, the balance and all that? And I, I think that, you know, I wrote this piece for the Los Angeles Review of Books because I sat and thought about this a lot and I had my own feelings. And sometimes I, you know, I was angry, you know, about certain things like American dirt or, or what have you, or essentially white people getting to write about experience of marginalized people, but the marginalized voices themselves not being able to be heard, that is something that is really uh, rampant. And it's like, as if there needs to be a translator, you know, or a go between, uh, between these communities, because they can't, they can't speak for themselves, or they can't speak in a way that is universally understood. I actually think that that's one of the worst parts of all this is that it really shortchanges the readers and undermines uh, the readers, they, I think readers actually want that. That is what is, it's not only what is done to the writers, the marginalized writers, it is what is done to all readers by keeping those stories out of the world. So I, I see it as a double injustice, you know, and that's why it's really important. But I wrote this piece about cultural appropriation in the biography sphere, you know, because this question of who gets to write about what and who gets to write about whom. And I basically had a kind of four point way of looking at it. One is that I wanna live in a world where most anyone gets to write about most anything. That's the world I wanna live in. That's not the world we live in, but that's the world that I wish we lived in. And then, you know, and secondarily, I, I think that if you are from outside of the community that you're writing about, you need to do a lot of research. 
That's a given. The third point, which I think is the one that is often missed, and I think this is the part that I, when I sat and thought about it, I'm like, what is happening? What, what is this really about? Is that when someone is writing something from outside of the community, oftentimes they might do a lot of typical research. And what's ironic is that sometimes like literally a white writer will read other white writers and researchers about the community. And they'll say, look, I did all this research. And then still the voices, authentic voices are missing. And so I think what's really important is to reflect on who you are in writing this. Who are you? What are all the rings of privilege, you know, and identity that separate you uh, from this community? And then the fourth point is, even after you do all of that, somebody writing about the very same thing from that community is going to be able to access certain insights that, that you can't. And that's, you know, what, you know, what I think, and it's so much of the cultural appropriation debate, I feel is about, you know, when it becomes about, oh, this is censorship. I, I think that it, it has to do with the fact that we have this conversation about, or we don't have the conversation about who gets to. We have the conversation about why can't I? I should be able to, you know, which in itself is a privileged conversation. I love so much of what you said. One, I'm just going to let our readers and watchers for people on the podcast or on YouTube know that all of those amazing essays will put links in the show notes too. So you can (laughs) go and read them because these are all great essays. I have read two of the three. I'm excited. I haven't read the LA Review of Books one. So I'm excited to go read that one as well. But I think that when I think about cultural appropriation and the ability to write about a community, I think of a really tangible, easy example of E.L. James mm-hmm. using the Wikipedia page on kink to write Fifty Shades of Grey. Mm-hmm. And I and, and how so much of the character Christian Grey was kinky because of trauma. And mm-hmm. I think about how often we as people who are not a part of a, of a group, especially a marginalized group, only access that group through their trauma and we don't access the like nuances. We don't access, you, you talked about that, the like mm-hmm. tiny details. We don't access the joy. We don't access the normalcy of that life to the people who live it. We are seeing it as this other. So one of the questions I have for you seem to be a really great person. Something I, I struggle with is how do we allow for, as writers, diversity within our books without appropriating other cultures. And I have my thoughts and feelings on that, but I would love to know your thoughts Mm -hmm. and feelings on how do you, so, so is, and this is one of the things that my, my authors ask me a lot when they're like, I want my book to have diverse people, but I don't want to like not write about people who it's not my voice and not my experience. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So two, two thoughts. Um, One thing, I'm glad you mentioned this. I think Marginalized writers, you know, people of different backgrounds, often one of the things we talk about, and it is a, a real concern I have, that suddenly now when publishers and magazines, um, you know, you, you look at the climate of racial injustice that's been going on, and suddenly the country has woken up, you know, to it. And even though many people have been working on this issue for so long, and certainly living with these issues for so long, and then there's a way in which it's sometimes being treated as a trend. And, and now suddenly they, there's a way in which it's, it's a different type of exploitation of marginalized writers. They want stories about trauma. And, you know, and certainly maybe trauma is part of the story, but that's not the focus maybe of what a, you know, a writer wants to write about. It's just one of the many flavors, you know, included in their, in their writing. But, they're being pushed to write a certain type of story that maybe echoes, you know, the news. This is one issue that I, I think is is happening with the pendulum kind of swinging uh, in this other direction. As far as writers including characters or experiences that are outside of their sphere of reference, I I think you know it's this conundrum because on one level we don't want to have we want books that reflect the world, you know, and we want that. And so if people are too scared, or, you know, or don't want to, then we're going to just, you know, continue to have books that don't reflect that richness. So I think that one of the 
things that has developed over the last few years, and I hope that it kind of continues to be more and more formalized, is the notions of sensitivity readers. And that's why I think, A, I think when you're creating your writing community, your, your community should, should have diversity within it. You know, that's, if you are somebody who reads diverse books, wouldn't you want to you know, hang out and be in a part of a community that, that is diverse in, in every sense? Uh, but even beyond that, sensitivity readers, which if people don't know, there are people, it started out as an informal thing where people would quid pro quo, you know, as, you know read people of a certain identity would read uh, work that reflects that identity so that they could give notes you know, on authenticity and uh, on various things. But now it's actually become more and more formalized. There are a couple of websites where you can look up sensitivity readers and you pay them and they are kind of clear about what they, what they do and what they will look for in the, in the writing. So I think that's really important. If we're willing to go and spend money on classes, we're willing to go and spend money on, you know, other uh, parts of our writing, I think this is just as important. Yeah, I'm in a uh, binders full of sensitivity readers group on Facebook that's open to anybody interested in either finding a sensitivity reader or being a sensitivity reader. And there's so many people in that. So for people who are looking for a great Mm -hmm. place to start just on Facebook, binders full of sensitivity readers, that's what it's called. And there are a couple and it's a it's it's not only a great place to be if you're looking for a sensitivity reader or you want to be a sensitivity reader, but it's just a great place to be in community with people mm-hmm. who are dedicated to including non-appropriative diversity in their mm-hmm. in their group and paying people for the labor yeah. of helping them with their book, not just like exactly. asking your one black friend over here to like read your book for free. You're like, hey, yeah. I'm going to pay a professional who's going to work with me as an editor to make sure that my book is not appropriative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, you know, when when I think about things like American Dirt, one of the questions that comes up, and and not to single, that's just been the latest fiasco. It's just a big, it's like in the front. If you don't know the American Dirt, just Google it. You'll find all the information you need. I mean, Oprah was behind it. I mean, it was such a big uh, blow up. But what was amazing to me about the whole thing was how, how many places along the way there could have been interventions. So that really shows you the systemic failures all along the way to that book being published, you know, so it spoke to the lack of diversity within the publishing, a publisher spoke to, you know, not it, it, yes, it was the author's failure, but it was many other people's failure along the way. So when we talk about, I, I want to hold a single person responsible for their actions. And I also want to recognize that that she went through many people and Mm -hmm. she was told many times Mm -hmm. that what she was doing was actually something beneficial to a community. And I think about that a lot when I think about, and I hate to single her out because I understand it's complicated, but I think about Becky Albertalli and the Love Simon phenomenon. Like Mm -hmm. there was this person, Mm -hmm. this like straight at the time, identified as a straight white woman, writing about gay men coming out in a really traumatic way and it blew up. And it was really hard for people within the queer community to see somebody who hadn't like get popularity off of an experience that they couldn't write about themselves. Like I couldn't get published Mm -hmm. for a very long time Mm -hmm. as a queer person writing romance, a queer person writing about sex. And it's hard. And it's not that I don't, like I am, I cried when Love Simon was in the in the theaters because it's the it's a movie I needed as a kid, like a queer person and in major theaters. But I want queer stories alongside it. And so for me, it's like, how can we how can we tell those stories? Yes. And how can we make sure that the people who those stories are about are centered in the storytelling, like or as the storytellers? Exactly. I think that's exactly right. I mean, and the thing is, yes, we want to sell books. Yes, we want our books to be popular, but there has to be something above that, which is that you want the book to be really reflective of you and most importantly, reflective of the subject and to do it justice, you know, and that's the way I think about it. And I mean, there are some times where the author themselves are not aware, you know, and I do think that that's the case in a lot of times. But that is exactly why I say, you know, it, it's the failure of that person. But then the publishing process is not 
an individual thing. There are so many hands that touch a manuscript on the way to publication. So imagine the systemic, you know, failure. And it is, it's another realm of systemic racism. That's what, you know, my piece was about for the Atlantic. It was that it's systemic racism is, is rejection is masquerading. Um, I mean, sorry, systemic racism is masquerading as rejection, you know, and there are good reasons to reject things. There are good reasons that our work might be rejected. But I think what is so hard for marginalized writers is never knowing whether our work got a fair shake, whether it got a, an authentic and deep read. And I think it's hard for that to happen with the publishing industry in the way it is. You know, and I, I think, you know, obviously I've found ways to navigate, you've found ways to navigate. And so I don't want to be you know, gloom and doom. And like, that's why I think it's very important to find your community, find those books that you think have been write, written well, find those people who do write, you know, authentically or responsibly, uh, whether they are within those communities or allies to those communities. And I think that's the other thing is what, how do people live their lives off the page is actually relevant. You know, we think of that as separate, but I do think it's kind of, you know, relevant uh, to this. But I, I, you know, so I do think, I think things are changing. It, they are changing. I do see evidence of change. Sometimes I think it's glacial, <laughs> but I, I do think it's, it's changing. I think the past year or so has really flipped a switch. Um, it shouldn't have taken what it took. It shouldn't have taken this long. <laughs> I'm just being very, yeah. very honest. We're in 20, you know? it took, tw it took yeah. a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, I was working in racial justice 10 years ago. That's before I made the jump. And the, we, were, we were trying to publicize voter oppression and voter suppression efforts that were happening. As soon as Obama took office, you know, those efforts were underway. We could not get that into the mainstream media. We could not get that reported on. We were talking about what's happening in the border and children being detained you know, that was very hard to get into the mainstream media. So it's very interesting in this moment to just kind of, you know, and I'm trying to say, well, I'm, I'm glad that there's a broader awareness about these things. And I'm very curious to see how this will be reflected in literature. You know, I'm very hopeful. But, you know, I've had weird things said to me, you know, when one white writer was introducing me to another white writer and they said, oh my gosh, Kavitha writes about really trendy stuff like race. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, you know, so what, what is the appropriate, you know, response to that? It's such a strange, you know, thing. I'm like, I do not write about race because it's trendy. I, when I wrote the pieces, when I've written the pieces, I'm kind of like in that moment where I feel like, do you all see this? Are we not going to talk about this? And that's usually the motivation is that I haven't seen anybody commenting on this. I feel the need to put this out in the world. If one person writes to me and says, oh my gosh, I totally feel you. I'm so glad you wrote this. I feel, you know, great. Sometimes it's just getting it out of my mind and body and onto the page. And, you know, if it gets published, that's, you know, great. But it's it's really about, reflecting, you know, what I am observing, which at the same time, I'm not seeing reflected, you know, in the news, in the coverage, in literature, uh, you know, so that's really often the starting point for my, <laughs> the motivation for, for many of my pieces. I love that, that you are building a whole writing career off of a part of yourself that you're not seeing elsewhere. So you're, you're telling that story. And I think I think that's beautiful. And I think that's such a beautiful place to end this. Unfortunately, we're at yeah. time. I oh, could talk to you. you for hours and hours, but I think that's such a beautiful place to end. Like you are reflecting your story onto the world. And I, I just love that you are taking that passion and reflecting it back to the world. Thank you so much for having me. And oh, I have a couple I more hope... questions. We're oh, not quite yes. done yet. Not quite done okay. yet. Don't worry, because I have my last two questions that I ask everybody. Great. And that is one, what is a book that changed your life? It doesn't have to be the book that changed your life, like the ultimate book, but what is a book that changed your life? This is this is super secret. This is my way of finding great books to read. But also, <laughs> I think it says a lot. So what is a book that has changed your life? There's so many, but I will tell you, I loved 
A Place for Us by Fatima Mirza. That's a recent book. And I have to tell you, related to our, you know, uh, our broader conversation, that when Sarah Jessica Parker announced that she was starting an imprint, you know, within a publishing house, I thought, great, because that's just what we need is another very rich white celebrity woman having an imprint. Honestly, that was my reaction. And then it was announced what would be her first book. And it was this book by a young Muslim American writer named Fatima Mirza, graduate of the Iowa Writers Program, you know, called A Place for Us. And it was going to be about a Muslim American family. And I was like, hmm, okay, we'll see. (laughs) And then I read this book and it's amazing. It is such a beautiful, beautiful intergenerational portrait that has so much nuance and so much love and compassion. And I was deeply impressed that the vision for this book was able to be you know, realized. And a little side note, she just married Riz Ahmed. Mm. <laughs> That's a nice little side note. I we, like can have, we can have celebrity gossip and reading. I like this. <laughs> I, I'm all for the celebrity reader <laughs> gossip combo. Um, I did not know about this book or like that whole story. So I'm super excited and I cannot wait to read it. And I will let you know as soon as I do, I'm going to go add that to my cart as yes. soon as we're done. And then my second to last question for you is, what is a book that you would love to read, but you don't want to have to write that's not yet out in the world? Oh, I mean, there on one level, I don't know, but on another level, there's so many, <laughs> so many, you know. Um, it's one of those questions that I think gets people thinking because one of the reasons I ask it, well, I asked that first one because I want book recommendations. And I asked the second yeah. one because I think so often we think we have to write every book, not just the ones that we do. So I encourage people to like, say, Hey, here's a book. If y'all have, if anybody has this idea, they want to, if anyone can take this, yeah. here's the idea. Go do it. Go take do it. it. And yeah. yeah. So go do it. So we'll, uh, we'll just say everybody go write whatever books you are all thinking about writing. I, I, you know, what you said is very, very important, which is, uh, that, you know, the story that you, I, I think it's very important to not study trends too much mm-hmm. and to be not motivated by, oh, that book hit. So I want to write a book like that because I want to hit. And instead, really examine what story could only you tell, as opposed to telling another story like one that is out there. You know, it's great to find examples and to be motivated by books like the ones you want to write. But I think, you know, when I hear writers talking about wanting to jump on a trend, I think to myself, what are you going to add to that? You have to be, you know, you were talking about my motivations. I had many, a lot of dark moments. I had moments when I didn't think the book was going to get published and all of that. And so it's really important to have a motivation during those times. So that's why I think like, you know, if you're motivated by trends, you know, and even as you talked about your own book, you know, you went through so many ups and downs. So you have to kind of stay focused and stay motivated. So if, if it is tied to the market, which is fickle, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to sustain you. Yeah. I always tell people by the time you write the book about the sparkly vampires, nobody wants to read about sparkly vampires anymore. And they're, you know, that's the thing. <laughs> and, and all the stories, you know, when I wrote the piece on, you know, systemic, you know, racism, underlying re- rejection, I mean, everybody knows that, you know, now the problematic JK Rowling, but, you know, she was re- received so many rejections nobody wants to read about a wizard boy you know and and so it's like I feel like in some ways publishing is always behind Mm -hmm. you know they're they're behind and then so they don't want to publish books about wizard boys and then they only want (laughs) to publish books about wizard boys you know and and then you're Stephanie Meyer trying to write about vampire children I don't know werewolf children you know and it's like no nobody wants to read about that so it's always like a you know so that's why I think following trends is not a great idea. The only trend I encourage people to follow is the um, the saying that the best way to write your to sell your first book is write your second. Like the the trend that I've seen work time and time again for writers is to keep writing. Yes, as to like have a series or have more than one book because and have multiple books out there because that is the only trend I've ever seen that consistently pays off both creatively for you and financially as a writer too. I completely concur. I mean, if you have only just that one idea and if it doesn't, you know, make it out there, 
then you're kind of, you know, left without options. Whereas I think that if, and that goes back to the motivation, your motivation has to truly be to write, you know, and not about just selling that one book. It has to be, you're motivated, you're curious about the world, you're looking, you're constantly observing, you're thinking about things. That's, I think, you know, really, really key. Yeah. And I truly believe if you have one story in you, you have 30 stories in you, right? Like if you can find the motivation behind telling a story, then you can tell 20 other stories. You'll have to find that other thing. Yeah. I think that's true. And, you know, that's yeah. great. And I would love to know, so my last question is, tell me more about this amazing class that you teach on how oh. to do all of the stuff that we've talked about, because <laughs> I'm excited to sign up for it. It sounds amazing. So tell me a little bit more about this. Class so essentially I, you know, I always say that I, I created the class that I wish I had had, you know, at the start of my writing career. And um, so it's called writing about social issues. And I currently teach it through catapult uh, and it's a six week nonfiction workshop and we cover a range of topics. We, you know, cover, uh, basically it's focused on, we read a lot of uh, authors whose work I think shows how to write responsibly and ethically, but also compellingly about social issues. And it, hitting that balance is, is not easy, but it's, it's totally possible, especially when you see that it, it's been done and it's, um, you know, it's been done by other authors. My next session starts on May 12th and it's through Catapult, which is a great organization and a great literary magazine for people who are, whether they're writing memoir or fiction, I think their literary, mag literary magazine is, is really wonderful. And, and they also have classes on everything from poetry to memoir writing to, you know, other types of nonfiction writing and fiction writing, novel writing, short stories, you know, you name it. So, um, and of course, with the pandemic, their classes are online. So it's really now available to people all over the country and all over the world. Yeah, so my next session starts on May 12th. And I have to say, I have the most amazing students. They are often people who are doing amazing things out in the world, you know, whether it's climate change economists, uh, abortion providers, you know, just it, it runs the gamut and the, along with the issues that they are trying to juvenile defenders, you know, the, the issues that they are working on in the world sometimes or curious about and that they want to explore, you know, on the page. So it's, I always learn so much, you know, from working with them. And Sounds like a great, great class and cohort. It's, it's really, really wonderful. And, uh, and that inspired me to work on my second book, to, exactly to your point, you know, sometimes the thing is sitting in front of you and you don't see it. Um, and it inspired me to work on a book because through my class, I'm only able to reach a few people at a time. Um, and I keep the class small so that, you know, it's really, you really get to know each other's work well. But I'm working on a book uh, that's currently titled Sparking Change on the Page. And it's my own lessons and reflections on writing about social issues. So it will include my own essays, some essays by others who I really admire, uh, who write about social issues, as well as lessons, you know, kind of, and reflections, you know, that kind of tie all of the kind of key concepts together. And it's being published by Beacon Press, um, a press which I admire, you know, so much because they have a long, long history of publishing writing about social issues. You know, I went there first because I kind of knew that I would be in good hands. So I'm excited. So that comes out next summer, summer of 2022. Okay. I love that it's on Beacon too. I'm a big fan of Beacon. And what they thank do. you so much. Yeah. yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank and y'all, you. you just saw what it takes to be a writer. You like have a course, you have this thing you're passionate about, you go and write a biography and then you find other things that you're passionate about. And then you're teaching a course. Then you do a like following that passion, that spark that you talked about the burning question that you burning questions. Yeah. I just love that. And um, one last final question is how can people find you if they want to follow you and learn more about you and more from you? Sure. Um, I, I have a website. It's not super sexy, but it's called Kavita Das. Um, it's my name. And I'm on Twitter at Kavita Mix and I'm on Facebook too. I will confess that I have an 18 month old, so I'm not as much on social media <laughs> as, as, as I used to be, especially when I was head of marketing communications. <laughs> but, um, and I, 
and I'm not publishing as frequently, you know, um, I'm not in the news hustle that I was before, but I also feel like I've been able to back away a little bit because like I said, the conversations that I didn't think were happening five and 10 years ago are, are beginning to happen. So I don't feel like I need to be, you know, uh, pushing on those things as much. Um, there's so much to be done, but I feel like the wheels are turning even if they're not turning as fast as I would like, I feel like there's a wider group of people who are now part of that conversation. Well, and I have to say, one, it's amazing that you are taking time, like time off. People in the social justice area need time off with their kids as much as anybody else. Yeah. And also, I know that you aren't publishing quite as much, but I'm still loving all the photos of your kid. So <laughs> I'm down for both. I'm here to cheer on the cuteness of your kid and the beautiful beauty of your words. So that's my contribution now. Yes, right. Like, <laughs> horrible photo of my <laughs> <laughs> It's pretty cute. <laughs> I can live with it. I can yeah. live with that. <laughs> well, thank you again. It has just been so you are an inspiration and it's been so wonderful getting to chat with you. And I encourage everybody listening and watching along to follow Kavita. We'll include all of those links down below and um, get the books and take the course and just be a part of this amazing movement that you're a part of in, in person that you are and the spark that you have. Thank you so much, Lauren. And I'm so glad uh, to see the work that you're doing to pull people up, to demystify, you know, and remove obstacles uh, for people from, you know, publishing. I think that's such important. That's, that's really important. Thank you. I believe that if we can be our own gatekeepers, we can add more diversity to publishing and to the writing world. So that's my goal. Amen. A woman. A woman. <laughs> well, on that note, it was a great chatting with you. And bye, everybody. We will see you next time. Bye for now. This week's School for Writers book recommendation is My Sister, the Serial Killer by Oyankan Braithwaite. I know that this title might be a little shocking, but I loved this book. I loved this book. It's kind of a little ridiculous how much I loved a novel about a serial killer, but I did. And in fact, it got me thinking like, okay, if my sister killed somebody, uh, where would we bury the body? How would we do this? Like, It gets your mind going. This is a story about two sisters. One is a nurse who has all her stuff together, and the other one is a pretty beautiful sister who may or may not be a serial killer. It is a story about love, it's a story about rejection, it's a story about family, and it's a story about serial killing. <laughs> I know, it's, it's amazing. You guys know how much I love a good, quirky, weird story, but I also love a story about sisters being there through thick and thin, helping no matter what. It'll get your mind thinking in some devious ways, but it'll also get you laughing and it will get you thinking, but it's not just disturbed. It's actually really relatable and funny and you can't stop laughing and also cringing through the whole book. It's also a book set in Lagos, Nigeria, which is a culture I don't know a lot about. So it was really great for me to feel like I got to meander through the streets of Lagos with the characters. Because it's set in Nigeria, I loved listening to the audiobook because some of the words were words I wasn't familiar with, so it was really nice to hear them spoken by a native speaker. I'm also a fan of Adepero Oduye's voice, and she's the narrator of this, so I really appreciated that narration. So if you feel like reading it, it's a great book, I'm sure, but if you feel like listening to it as an audiobook, I highly, highly suggest getting it on audiobook because it's amazingly narrated. And... I highly suggest getting it through Libro.fm. When you buy an audiobook through Libro.fm, not only are you able to support a local independent bookstore, but you also own your files. So you have them forever and you're not tied to a specific place to listen to them. You also can share them with friends. And if you use the link that we have, you can support Libro.fm in supporting independent bookstores and you get a free audiobook and we get a free audiobook as well. It's a win-win. Now, if you prefer the physical form, I highly suggest grabbing it through our bookshop.org slash school for writers link. That also supports local independent bookstores and it's an affiliate link. So you support the school for writers podcast as well. 
Once again, I highly, highly, highly suggest My Sister the Serial Killer by Oyen Khan Braithwaite. And it is just such a fun, quirky, totally in just endearing, but also amazing and creepy book at the same time. It is one of those novels you absolutely have to read. You just finished another episode of the School for Writers podcast. Woohoo! Go you! Did you know that we're more than just a podcast? School for Writers is a full-service support team helping you to get your story out into the world. Here are three ways you can get even more writerly inspiration and education. Number one, subscribe. It's so easy. All you got to do is click that little subscribe button down below wherever you listen or watch the School for Writers podcast. That not only guarantees that you don't miss another episode, but it also helps support our continuation of this show. Number two, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Pinterest at School for Writers. Every day we post helpful tips and tools like journaling prompts, reading recommendations, and live interviews with inspiring experts. Number three, visit schoolforwriters.com where you can check out past episodes, join a writing program, and get even more tips, tools, and inspiration to support your writing life. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our Write More Challenge, a 10-day program to help you jumpstart your writing routine. Thanks again for supporting School for Writers. We'll see you next episode. School for Writers is produced by me, Lauren Marie Fleming, with editing and support from Samantha Olivares. All rights reserved by Las Maestras LLC. Our music is De Lejos by Ilabamba. Check them out on Spotify. Big thanks to the team at Terrorbird and big thanks to Kristen Hozak. And of course, a massive thank you to you, the listener. Now put down this podcast already and go write. I'll see you in the next episode.